When SJ was 19 years old, she was in a lukewarm relationship with her high school boyfriend who had zero interest in spoiling her. The last Christmas that we spent together, he didn't get me a Christmas present. And I'm not the kind of person who's concerned about how much money you spend on me. I used to say he could have picked up a rock on the side of the road and given it to me, and that would have been enough because it would have meant that he was thinking about me. But instead, he got me nothing after three Christmases together. And that was towards the end of things. So I would kind of jokingly say to my friends, like, oh, well, if we break up, I'm just going to get a sugar daddy because I'll know that he'll be attentive. And everyone would laugh and it was kind of a joke. Um, and then I don't I don't know what happened. It just wasn't a joke anymore, I guess. <laughs> we finally broke up and I was back home with my parents because we'd been living together. And I just thought, I don't know. I mean, what's the harm in looking? So I found a seeking arrangement and I made an account and I really wanted to separate myself because I was pretty uneducated about it at the time from doing sex work. Like in my brain, that was such a a taboo thing. And so I wanted to make it very clear that there was no promise I was going to sleep with you. This was going to be, you know, on my terms and here were my expectations and that I wasn't really asking for an allowance or anything like that, that I made enough money to get by and to pay my bills. But I just wanted to be able to do fun things and experience things that I couldn't otherwise afford to do and just kind of live a lifestyle that was a little bit outside of my my standard. And the first person who I really genuinely talked to, I ended up being in a, a relationship with for a little over three years. That three-year sugar relationship started rather typically with a low-key meetup to see if there was any chemistry between them. We just went and got coffee. We didn't, you know, there was no type of sexual interaction. There was no, no like pretext or anything. And on our first date, I mentioned something about, he complimented my hair and I said, oh, I really don't like it right now. I've been meaning to do something to it. And on our second date, he brought me a a $300 gift card to a fancy salon near me, which, you know, as a 19 year old, that's crazy. The relationship came with numerous financial perks, including a free apartment. And although it ate up most of her free time, because sugar dating can be incredibly time-consuming, SJ got exactly what she was after, a tangible quality-of-life upgrade, as well as experiences and adventures that were otherwise out of reach. He let me fly an airplane once, which was kind of (laughs) crazy. I don't know if that's a thing I would want to do again. Um, Took me to New York a few times. It just kind of gave me a chance to do things that I wouldn't normally be able to do as a broke 19-year-old, you know? Yeah, most broke 19-year-olds don't get to fly airplanes. They do not. That's true. I don't know that they would want to because it's a little terrifying. It was just a little two-person plane. He's He's not a pilot for a living, but he has a pilot's license for fun. Uh, And he just said, oh, let's fly somewhere for lunch today. And it was just a little two-person plane, and both both seats have steering wheels. So we were, I didn't, you know, take off from the ground or anything. I wasn't trying to get us killed. But once we were in the air, he had me drive for a little bit. And I, like, to this day, cannot drive a car. I am a terrible driver. So letting me drive an airplane is probably a terrible idea. But it was pretty fun. And you mentioned that you've communicated with quite a few people who have sugared. Yeah. How different have other people's experiences who you've talked to been from your own? 
I think that um, it just sort of reminded me how lucky I was in mine. Uh, most other people that I've that I've talked with, and these have been a lot of close friends, and you know, working in the industry, you meet other people who work in the industry, and you know, you build friendships with them. Um, I think that a lot of people tend to have much shorter term situations. They tend to be more transactional, I think, for a lot of people. I, I think just that there's a huge variety of, you know, what people are looking for is so different person to person. Um, but I definitely think it, it just helped remind me how lucky I was with mine that I kind of hit hit the jackpot on the first try. And have you heard, like, legit horror stories or just a lot of kind of disappointment? Um, No real, like, horror stories. Um. Ooh, the closest thing to a horror story I have is a friend of mine who I worked with at my day job who also got into sugaring had um, a gentleman who she met up with um, regularly a few times a month. And um, they had a very transactional relationship. You know, he handed her an envelope of cash at the beginning of their date and they spent time together, whether that was sexual or not. But the first time she went to his house, um, she texted me and just in all caps said, oh my God. And so I panicked and thought something was wrong. Um, And she texted me back and said, everything's fine. I'll call you later. And she called me and she said he was giving her a tour of the house and there was one door that he just sort of skipped over and kind of didn't acknowledge. And so she came back to it and said, well, what's in this room? And he said, oh, I don't want to freak you out. And so she panicked, obviously, and thought it was going to be some, I don't know, there's people tied up in there or something. And so she pushed a little bit and said, no, I really want to know. And he opened it, and it was like large endangered animals that he had hunted that were all stuffed and mounted. And there was like a zebra pelt blanket, and there was a giraffe head. And (laughs) that was definitely the most horrific story and not in a way that you would probably think. Yikes. (laughs) I'm sure some of you are into that kind of thing because it takes all kinds, but I much prefer my giraffe heads attached to living, breathing giraffes. But getting back on topic, sugar relationships often include a sizable age difference. One thing SJ mentioned being grateful for was the fact that her original sugar daddy was only about 40, which in her experience is pretty young for a sugar daddy, even if it still meant he was twice her age. And as is often the case in relationships where one partner is literally old enough to be the other's biological parent, SJ's sugar daddy sometimes took on a role that bordered on fatherly. I will say one thing that he did once that I that I really kind of appreciated how he went about it. So I was learning how to drive. I was very late with that and I needed a car. And so I started saving and he said, well, save up enough to buy this car and I'll take you and we can look at them together. Um, So I ended up saving something like, I don't know, $2,000. And I was just going to buy some little car off Craigslist and we went and test drove some, which I felt more comfortable with him there just because, you know, a 40-year-old man's going to be a little more respected by strangers on the internet than a 19, 20-year-old girl. And we got there and he paid for the car. So, you know, he had me save all this money so that I would have that little savings nest egg. And I think that was like a really interesting thing about him that probably not very many other people are like. Nobody else that I experienced after him 
really cared as, as much about how they left me, you know? It showed that he did care about you. Yeah, I think so. And in, in, in his way. <laughs> you You qualified that. Can you add a little bit more to that? Yeah, I think... There was never any any disillusion about, or I guess illusion, about the terms of our relationship. And there was never any pretense that it was going to be a thing that went on in perpetuity. Like we both went into it knowing that there was going to be an end date and that this was a temporary thing. Yeah, I think that he definitely cared about me and wanted me to to leave our relationship being a, a person who was generally better off financially and otherwise. Um, but I don't think that he ever really thought of me as like a a partner, you know? You were recreation, I guess. That's a good way to put it, yeah. And how did you think of him? Like, it, like if you filled that role for, for him, what role did he fill sort of in, in your mind? That's an interesting question. I don't know that I've ever really thought of that. He was almost like a little bit of a caretaker, I guess. Um, he taught me a lot of things that I wouldn't have learned otherwise. I think he helped me grow up quite a bit, which I value a lot. And I think he was a, a big source of entertainment for a long time, obviously. He really, really helped me. I've always been a very independent person, um, but he really helped me become super independent, which I really value. It was really a very positive experience. I felt like he respected me as as much as you can in that situation. And, you know, he never mistreated me, which I can't say of everyone that I had interactions with. So I think it probably went as well as I could have hoped. And how sexual was the relationship? I, You know, I went into it with this idea that everything was going to be on my terms and if I wasn't super attracted to someone outside of their money or what they were offering me, um, that it just wouldn't happen. We wouldn't have sex. There wouldn't be any any kind of interaction like that. Um, that was a little bit silly of me to think. But like I said, I was so intent on separating myself from from being a sex worker, which is silly because during this time I also started doing actual sex work. So I was doing cam work for a long time during this. But at the beginning, I was so intent that it would just not be that. And that devolved pretty quickly. We definitely had a lot of natural chemistry, so I felt comfortable with him. I think that he was maybe not conventionally attractive, but I I found him attractive and certainly more attractive than a lot of other potential you know, sugar relationships out there. <laughs> um, so I we did not sleep together on the first date. I think I can't remember if it was the second or the third date. It didn't last very long. And I think that he saw it as an opportunity to explore some, you know, more taboo sexual fantasies that he wasn't able to do with his wife. So ultimately it ended up being very sexual and we went to play parties and he got sort of more involved in the the kink community here. And I think it for him it, it served as an outlet in that way, that he got the opportunity to have the kind of sex that he wanted to have, but that he wasn't able to have in his relationship. Many sugar daddies, as well as sugar mommies, who, as far as I can tell, are few and far between, are married and doing exactly what SJ just mentioned, using sugar relationships to get sex and perhaps other forms of intimacy and companionship that are missing from their marriages. Often these arrangements occupy this interesting middle ground between a typical extramarital affair 
and paying to see a more straightforward sexual services provider. In this episode, we will explore sugar dating with a diverse mix of sugar babies and one sugar daddy. Two of the featured sugar babies are also connected to podcasts focused on the sugar lifestyle. Ruby is the central character in the Sugar Baby Confessionals, and I spoke with her along with Sarah Mae Tucson, who is the creator, host, writer, producer, and editor of said podcast. Taylor Jones of the Sugar Daddy Formula podcast will join us as well. She's the author of a book with the same name and is a sugar dating mogul of sorts who, in addition to the book and the podcast, also has a social network for sugar babies and offers coaching services for women eager to find sugar daddies of their own. Welcome to episode 49 of Sex with Strangers, Sex and Sugar Dating. As always, I'm your host, Chris Soa. Please stick around. Hey, everyone. Just a couple quick things before we jump back into the sugar bowl. One, I've really appreciated the steady flow of ratings on Apple Podcasts. Please keep them coming. They are helpful and very much appreciated. Two, the next episode of this show is going to be about asexuality. And I'm a little bit worried that a bunch of people are not going to give it a chance and just think, well, this is going to be a boring show about people talking about not having sex. I guarantee you that is not the case. I've begun working on it, and there's a lot of really fascinating stuff in it that I think is going to surprise a lot of you. And that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to keep it a little bit of a a cliffhanger. So be on the lookout in January for that show. Now back to the topic at hand. The first self-professed sugar baby I spoke with for this show is Carmen, who also works as a full-service provider, sensual masseuse, and phone sex operator. She described herself in the initial email she sent me as a 41-year-old chubby Latina married mom and licensed vocational nurse. Carmen's first foray into sex work occurred about 15 years ago when she was still a full-time nurse after a rather brazen co-worker straight up offered to pay her for sex. She hesitated, but not for long. He was pretty good looking. He was height, weight, proportionate, you know, just a tall, you know, white guy who was my age, late 20s. Somebody that you would you could see me normally dating kind of guy. So I made rules and everything and I was extremely nervous. And then after work, we met at a hotel and we and we did it. And for me, that was like my really first experience. And he was actually very good at sex. And when I came home, I remember in the shower, I was just like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I did this. I can't believe that I was so desirable that he was willing to pay money to have sex with me. And that was my feeling like it actually felt it made me feel extremely wanted. I just felt wonderful. It was like a total confidence booster. And after that, I, you know, I did it. One more time with him, and then that was it. A similar dynamic emerged with another co-worker at that same facility, though she found her time with him considerably less thrilling. 
Now, this other man was an older, fat, short, ugly, older Hispanic man, you know, like, I don't know, 55 or something. He always had bad breath, too. I was like, ugh. You thought of this as kind of a, a business relationship? Like, how, how would you define what that arrangement was? I just felt like, wow, it's not hard to let him suck on my titties, to let him, you know, come on my thigh, and I get, you know, X, Y, and Z. It's really not that difficult compared to my job that actually is physically and mentally demanding. You know, it wasn't so much a business transaction. It just seemed like a good deal to me. With that perspective, it's no surprise that Carmen eventually transitioned out of the medical field directly into the sex industry. As I mentioned earlier, she's involved with various forms of sex work, including sugar dating. So with the guy that I call my sugar daddy now, he started out as a, you know, regular client, came to see me more and more and more and more often and, you know, started with the I really care about you, the I love you, all that kind of stuff. I'd been to his house, you know, he's married. I don't want to see other girls. I just want to see you. And so it just it became more of um, a relationship. So it just seemed better to to have this sugar daddy relationship than a pay me every time I see you kind of thing. She doesn't have a set allowance from him, but she does have access to one of his credit cards and requests cash when she feels like it. A while back, Carmen also created an account for herself on Seeking Arrangement, which has since been shortened to just Seeking, the same site SJ mentioned using to meet her initial sugar daddy, which, as far as I can tell, is by far the most popular and mainstream sugar dating site around. But the site isn't for everyone, Carmen included. She echoed a criticism that I've heard from a lot of people, which is that Seeking and other sites like it are filled with guys who are interested in paying for sex, but at a lower rate than what they would pay an escort. Most of them didn't want to use a condom. Most of them wanted to try out sex first, make sure we were a good mix. I went on a couple of dates through there. I did a couple of pay-for-plays. There was a couple who were like straight out, come over and let's fuck and I'll give you some money. Um, but it was always better to be an escort than it was that. I mentioned in a previous episode of this show that just about every aspiring sugar baby I had ever spoken with, up until that point at least, had failed to find anything like what they were looking for from sugar dating websites. Carmen was one of the people I had in mind when I made that statement, but She's just one of many others who have shared similar experiences with me over the years. And when I was working on the Pain for Sex episode of this show, one of the featured men, a guy who went by Tim, was almost giddy talking about how much more he got for his money once he shifted his focus from Backpage, RIP Backpage, to sites like Seeking. The main thing I remember from that conversation was just how adamant he was in urging me not to focus too much on those financial details out of a purported fear that other men might follow suit and some sugar babies would be exploited in the process. As we heard earlier, SJ had great luck 
with Seeking when she first used it in 2012, but mentioned a belief that fallout from the Ashley Madison hack in 2015 brought a lot of new people to the site who ultimately harmed its overall quality and effectiveness. One challenge any aspiring sugar baby must confront when navigating any of these sites is the cold, hard reality of supply and demand. Here's Taylor Jones from the Sugar Daddy Formula, among numerous other projects. It's, it's mind-boggling. If you were to join one of these Sugar Daddy dating sites, it's like they claim they have millions of members, but that's not entirely true in terms of people who are active. But let's say with a site that they say they have 10 million members, 8 million are women, 2 million are men. And of those 2 million, you got fakes, pretenders, scammers, and everything in between. So there's really a small percentage of ones who are actually real. A number of people I spoke with for this episode agreed with Taylor's general assessment of the male-to-female ratio on sugar dating sites, at least in the U.S. Sarah Mae Tucson from the Sugar Baby Confessionals was quick to point out that sugar dating demographics can vary greatly around the world. As I mentioned earlier, Taylor has a book and podcast dedicated to guiding sugar babies through the often difficult process of finding legit sugar daddies. She also offers one-on-one coaching and assists women in creating online profiles. I like to think of a profile as a blank canvas. And whatever I say, I can paint the image in someone's head. Literally, I can get them excited. I can make them feel like, man... She is this diamond. Where did she come from? And that's the power of words. And if we know how to use them, man, a woman will never, ever be broke. That very much lines up with my impression of your coaching strategy, which I think is very much focused on getting people to use the right words. It is, and their goals. And I say their goals is that when a woman comes to me and she's like, Taylor, I want to find a sugar daddy and I'm looking for this guy to give me $5,000. $5,000, Chris, that is like the magic number that these girls pick from. <laughs> I'm like, how did you come up with that? They were like, well, I heard it from other people. But then when we really understand the reason why the 5000 then I have something here. Like I wouldn't work with the woman without understanding her why to begin with, because there's a story behind it. So I'm like, okay, if you had this $5,000, what are you going to pay and why? Either it's to pay down debt or she's looking to put herself in a better position financially or to experience different things that she couldn't have because she doesn't have it herself financially. But when I really understand her story, I'm like, okay, that's your money right there. It's in your story. And then I take her story And then I go and find the right place to position her to attract someone. So it doesn't necessarily have to be on a dating site. Like there's this one woman that I helped where her background was in finance and she was a graduate. And she came to me, she was like, I don't want to use any sugar daddy dating sites, but I'm trying to attract millionaires. So I had her create a podcast on finances where she only interviewed millionaire men. And according to Taylor... That woman went on to date one of the guests on said podcast. Taylor is a sugar baby herself, and her reason for sugaring, or her why, 
to borrow her own lingo, is all about upward mobility. I didn't want to just be a sugar baby. I wanted to become a sugar daddy. So you want to be in the same financial position he's in, essentially. Correct. You got it. You hit the nail on the head. I can be a visitor in the sugar daddy's world. And let's just be honest. It's like, yeah, we can have experiences and it might not be about him financially assisting us, but it's always about the money, even if it's his lifestyle and we want that lifestyle because it's backed by his finances to provide it. So it's always about the money. But if I'm a visitor in someone else's world and I'm coming back home to my four walls, well, if he leaves in two or three months or heck in a year and he takes it with him, I'm stuck in the same place. So I didn't want to just be a visitor in his world. I wanted to have his money. So for me, it became more about wealth building. You may have noticed that we have solely talked about sugar daddies and female sugar babies thus far. While sugar mommies exist, they appear to be incredibly rare. And the 56,000 plus member Reddit sugar lifestyle forum is full of comments warning people that most online sugar mommies are scammers. One fascinating thread I stumbled upon on that forum was a post by someone identifying as a 29-year-old sugar mommy, which was met with a barrage of skeptical comments accusing her of being a scammer herself. She seemed sincere to me, but that may just be my naivete talking. There also is a gay sugar scene, though it's much smaller than the straight one because of the demographics involved. I was able to speak to one gay former sugar baby, though I wasn't allowed to record that conversation. It was with one of the founders of SugarGaby.com, which is a pretty great URL choice. He sugared when he was in college and a little beyond that, and says the best time to sugar as a gay man is between the ages of 19 and 26 or 27. He advises current and future sugar gaybies, if you will, to view youth as a finite and fleeting resource one should exploit before it's gone, and very much endorses Taylor's approach of strategically investing what one receives from sugar daddies to reap genuine long-term benefits. SJ and others I spoke with for this episode said that they also believe the best window for female sugar babies is between 19 and one's mid to late 20s, which I think is very much in line with the conventional wisdom around this. That said, the straight sugar scene is pretty fucking big, big enough to accommodate some surprising outliers. According to Taylor, the oldest sugar baby she's coached was 61 years old. How much is it different coaching and marketing someone well into middle age or beyond versus someone who's barely legal to drink? Well, for someone who's older, she definitely has to have the right mindset to make this work to begin with. Because if she doesn't believe that she's worthy of having a man provide, then it's just not going to work. Because I can't, I can show her how, but if she doesn't implement because of her confidence, she's always going to fall short. So her mindset plays a big part. And also, 
we can be honest that, you know, her package plays a part because majority of people, as they get older, they let their stuff go. So she has like a decent package that, that works too. But for her, she can't approach this like she would if she was a 20-year-old woman or her younger version of herself because someone who's in her 20s, she can get by with having a guy spoil her or having a certain attitude that might be kind of bratty-like if she doesn't get her way. Whereas someone who's in her, let's say, mid-30s, 40s, and 50s, she can't start complaining if a guy isn't going to take her shopping. He's going to look at her and be like, you know what? I don't need this. You're a complainer. You're just drama. Where he would put up with it when she's 20. So how she approaches it changes. And the story that she gives for having someone want to provide her with changes too. So she has to be a woman who really owns it. She's the type of woman that she looks for a provider. Whereas that woman in her 20s, she's looking for someone to give her an allowance. You may recall that one of the first sex workers I ever interviewed for this show was a 62-year-old full-service provider based in New Orleans who did quite well for herself financially. So there definitely is room for people in their 60s and beyond across the many sectors that make up the sex industry. But as Taylor said, they market themselves a bit differently than 20-year-olds do. And it should come as no surprise that it's also more difficult for them to take on a bratty persona in order to get what they want. Which reminds me of a conversation I had a couple years ago with a seasoned provider in her 40s. Back when she was in her 20s and early 30s, she had no trouble getting her regulars to help her out of any given jam, real or imagined. But now in her 40s, she's realized that the men who like to play knight in shining armor are much more interested in rescuing some young, naive princess than a wise, experienced queen. She never used the term sugar daddy when talking about these guys, but it seems like at least some of them occupied that gray area between client and sugar daddy. Here's multi-hyphenate sex worker, activist, writer, and all-around badass, Susie Q, sharing her perspective on the difference between a regular and a sugar daddy. I think the difference is like, can you call that person if you need something? If you're like in distress, like if you have a regular that comes in and you do pretty much a specific thing and they pay you a specific amount of money, give or take like every time, but it would blow everything if you called them and were like, hey, my car got towed. I need $500 in my cash app. Can you send it to me, please? If that would ruin the relationship, then like, well, don't do it, first of all, <laughs> like handle your shit. Um, but I think that uh, there's a certain like vulnerability that comes with um, that like sugar parent relationship. That's how I define it. That's not going to be true for everybody. But to me, it's like there. there's also, I think for me, an emotional piece that I get from these people that is not that is still transactional, but is not quantifiable by money necessarily. Like they give me space or comfort or they see me in certain ways and spoil me in certain ways that like are special and real and true. And so I think that in order for a sugar relationship to really work, there has to be a little bit of an exchange like energetically in that way. 
Susie Q's sex work journey began with sugaring. I posted a sugar baby ad on Craigslist in my hometown, which is something I do not recommend to anyone. (laughs) What about that kind of arrangement made you think like this could be? Well, I was like, you know, I was like, I'm college educated. I'm adorable. Like I have all this life experience. I'm like super down. I'm great at sex. Like, fuck you, pay me world. And like, I was living in this like town where there was all this wealth. And I was like, God damn it. I am not going to like fuck my my high school boyfriend. Like, you know, if I'm going to have sex with somebody in this town, I want some money. (laughs) was really my thinking, you know? Um, And I think that, you know, women who are young, you know, and beautiful and smart, um, anyone who's young and beautiful and smart, it's like, there's value in that. And there's also, I think, a desire for me to use that to leverage not only money, but power and access right? Um, I come from a working class family. You know, I, I went like, I've made more, I make more money now than like anybody in my family like ever has. So it's my, I feel like I, I'm going to do everything I can to just hurl my way up the class ladder, you know, by any means necessary. And like, I want to know what white men in power with money know. I want that game, you know, and like, what better way to get it, you know? <laughs> and how did that first situation turn out? Like, did, um, did you find people through your Craigslist ad? I did. Luckily, not anybody that, like, knew my parents. Ugh, fucking idiot. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, uh, it was, like, two contrasting types. One was, like, a very scary man who was, like, cheating on his wife and... But he was, like, very into BDSM, which was, like, very new for me, too. And I was just like, oh, my God, yes. (laughs) But then I was, like, you know, in a roadway in at 3 p.m. with, like, a belt around my neck. And I was like, fuck, I had so many plans that were going to be cool. Don't, like, don't overdo that. Don't overdo that because you may not make it out. Um, I did. It was fine. It was fine. (laughs) But, whew, not a good call. Don't do that. Um, it's an interesting introduction to the yeah. sex industry. Yeah. Uh, and it, and that was like, not even like he didn't pay me, but he wanted to do the sexy stuff that I had only dreamed about. Like I, sex was not really a thing. I mean, it was fine. I knew I could do it. Like it was cool. I, I'm a Gemini. And so I was like, mostly about like, okay, can I get that boy to want to kiss me? Cool. Great. Okay. Can I get that girl to want to kiss me? Okay, cool. Great. Like I'm, I'm a hunter. Like I'm all, but, and like the actual act itself was like, yeah, it's fine. You know, um, until I discovered BDSM and leather and that kind of sex. And I was like, ah, so I was like, I didn't fucking care. I was like sexually awakened for the first time. I was like Kevin Spacey in like the last half of American beauty. Just like, I know the truth, you know, it was very, but then I met another guy who actually did pay me and he had like had a sugar baby for a really long time. He had mentored her within his own industry, set her up with like business like trappings and really set her on her way. And their arrangement had like ended and he was looking for someone new. And I was like, fuck, yes, that's me. Like kind of like Freddie Mercury. It was like, it smelled really good. Like he had great old man, older man vibes. Um, You know, he he was, I'll disclose he was in the cosmetics industry. So he looked good. 
But yeah, um, I, I couldn't stay in that town. <laughs> I could not, that, was, that was like, you know, so I got a good example. It was like a or medium example, I should say. Um, and then a really bad example. And then I moved to San Francisco and I had a couple other like scary experiences from seekingarrangement.com, which I hear is full of cops now. So be careful. Um, I do have like sugar relationships currently. Um, but I, you know, I think it's almost just like a, like how I'm, I'm not going to date any other way, you know, because I'm interested in that type of relationship that someone else is invested where I want somebody who's also invested in like helping me get to the next level, you know? And like, I, that, that's the kind of person who's going to be like a sugar daddy or a sugar parent. And like having older people who have success and business acumen and, um, you know, investments, having those kind of people in my life invest in me. Um, my friend Lydia calls, calls sugar baby. She doesn't call it that. She calls it investment dating. Um, and that's very much where I'm at these days. Just, I don't have time to like post an ad and like, who knows if that platform will even be up or if a cop is just going to be at the other end of that transaction. Like I'm just looking for connections with people who have assets that I want. And like, at the end of the day, isn't that just dating? <laughs> isn't that what like marriage is? Isn't that what all of this is? Like, but, uh, yeah, I think that, um, now I just know what I want and I'm not willing to settle for less. And I want every woman to feel that way. Every person to feel that way, like know what you want and don't settle for less. This actually happened in San Francisco a couple years before I really started doing erotic massage or full body sensual massage, as we called it back back then. I like your massage voice. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, you have to talk in like a low tone. There's like Mazzy Star playing in the background and like just the squirt of the lotion bottle. <laughs> you have to keep it, keep it low. Um yeah, I was doing that kind of work at like the height of like the second Silicon Valley boom. I had an in-call across the street from Twitter on Market Street and I did a lot of like midday appointments and it was just turn and burn. But I remember one girl in that in-call said she had like a sugar daddy on her phone that she was like managing or whatever. And she said this to like me, but kind of just the room. <laughs> like if you have a sugar daddy, like know exactly what you want and get it. Um, like if you have a phone bill that you need paid, if you have student loans that are outstanding, like don't ask if you, if you want a thousand dollar a week allowance, just like be direct and ask for it. Um, and I think that was like not a skill. That, and, and I remember hearing that as like, a, I was like, ah, I would rather just like give these dudes hand jobs, like during, on during the lunch break. Is that okay? Because oh, it was so much more sort of black and white and yeah. you didn't have to kind of, because valuing yourself is difficult. Like yeah. figuring out like, how much do I value? You have to have a little like femdom in you, I think, to be a successful sugar baby, you know, and I didn't have that yet. My dreams were so small then that I just like wanted to like make my money and go home to my shitty boyfriend and like enjoy my little millennial stripper life in San Francisco, you know, at that point. I did. And so like seeing this woman, I remember she was just so poised and so like just a boss. She was a boss. It took some time, but Susie Q eventually embraced her inner boss as well. I'm sure you noticed she mentioned fears about law enforcement targeting seeking arrangement users a couple of times. While no one else voiced that exact concern, 
The lone sugar daddy I interviewed, whom we shall call Mike, spoke at length about how careful he is not to cross the legal line between being a sugar daddy and being someone on the receiving end of prostitution services, which are, of course, criminalized virtually everywhere here in the U.S. where he lives. Things that I always advise to avoid crossing into sex for money is to not have a number associated with a meeting. Um, My personal opinion is that any time, every time we meet up, you are going to receive X amount of money. That means you're paying X amount of money for that time. That's an escort. If I tell you, hey, we're going to meet up for coffee, coffee's on me as a first meeting, then I'm not paying you to date me. I'm being a gentleman and picking up the tab. If I'm going to go on a trip, of course I'm going to pick it up. And then while we're there, we're going to go shopping. And here's a jewelry store. This is your limit. Go find something you like. Or just go on a date. Just just go on a date and enjoy somebody without the expectation of sex, without the expectation of money. And because you're both into the same lifestyle, trust that something's going to come out of it. And if you go on one or two dates and nothing comes out of it, break it off. It's just like dating, only we spoil each other. You spoil them with material things, and they then spoil you with affection? Or how how do they spoil you? I spent a lot of time thinking about this recently. Because at first I thought, I spoil them, we have wild kinky sex. And that, that was younger me. And as I grew up, I realized... They do so much more than have sex. They they take care of me when I don't feel good. They talk to me when I'm feeling down. They do all those things that you expect out of a relationship and sometimes don't get. I mean, these girls have gone above and beyond every time I've needed them. Basically, at the end of the day, I don't mind opening my wallet and buying them something because I look at all the emotional things that they do for me when I need it. And, of course, there's there's the sexual content, but it, it's affection. It's caring about me. It's about waking up and finding a text message because they couldn't sleep and just wanted to talk. There, there's a lot of affection, emotional side to it as well. You feel that these are actual relationships versus just arrangements, to, to use another term used in, in this lifestyle. That's probably the best way to describe it. There's the sugar arrangement and there's the sugar relationship. I think the average teen, early 20 girl out there is looking for a sugar arrangement because an arrangement literally is X amount of money allowance, this, that, and the other. And there are plenty of sugar daddies that are comfortable with handing out allowances. I happen to not be one of them because when I tried it, I found that it became more business-like and I get enough business at work. Um, I wanted the emotional connection of the personal gift. I'm personally giving you this for this reason. Um, it's going to sound really cheesy, and I think all good relationships are cheesy to an extent. Even when I give money, I'm giving money because you specifically need this. I looked at you and said, this is what you need. And it's a personal thought. One of the two sugar babies who uh, 
she needs help financially a little bit more often. But she never asks for it. She doesn't believe that's who she is. She will fight through whatever it is without saying anything. And the longer we've been together, the more I've spoiled her. Not just because our relationship grew, but because I got a better look at what she needs. And sometimes she'll just wake up and find that I sent her money. And she'll message me and she's like, what's this for? I'm like, did you read the note? And because I always send a note with the money. This is what it's for. This is what I want you to use this money for. And she's like, well, I needed it, but I was going to find another way. And I'm like, no, I saw your need and I took care of it. And to me, that's a lot better than it's Friday. Here's your paycheck. Right. And does she definitely identify as a sugar baby? She did not when we started dating. After going, I told her that I wanted her to experience a sugar date. And she kind of rolled her eyes at me and said, let's fine. If you want to do it, I'll do it. We got dressed up. We went to a fancy restaurant. We did fancier things. And she came back and she was like, that was fun. I definitely want to do that again. And kind of fell into the role. And she now does definitely consider herself my sugar baby. She's just a little bit more reluctant sometimes about receiving things than I think most people would expect from someone in this lifestyle. She is. And I think from my personal perspective, that's what drew me to her. Is I deal with so many girls that I want, I want, I want. She didn't want at first. She does want now. And every once in a while, I'll get a message and say, hey, daddy, can I have this? And she knows the answer is going to be yes, but she'll still call and ask or send a note and ask. Yeah, she, she is definitely more reluctant than most. That's a fair assessment. Quick disclaimer, the distinction Mike and I made between arrangements and relationships does not seem to be widely embraced within the sugar scene. As far as I can tell, arrangement is generally used as an umbrella term encompassing every possible kind of sugar agreement imaginable. But I think Mike's working definitions here nicely illustrate his sugar dating philosophy. Mike thinks he's in the minority when it comes to how he approaches spoiling his sugar babies, but he also believes his method is the best way to achieve longevity within the sugar lifestyle. He was a moderator of a sugar dating group on FetLife when we spoke, and in that capacity had a lot of communication with people who had just fallen victim to scams. Easily. Twice a month, we have somebody come in and say they got scammed. They lost all their money in their bank accounts because they gave somebody their bank account number. Or the worst story I heard, someone actually gave out their social. <laughs> it really got burned. But, yeah, we, we've made efforts within our group to help those that are new and joining the community. To Here's the warning signs. Here's the red flags. Here's the, the current scams that are going on. If, if you see a scam or something feels suspicious, email a moderator. That way we can update the sticky and let everyone know what the newest scam is out there today. Mike believes sugar babies are more susceptible to these scams in part because they are younger, generally speaking, and often less financially literate. But scammers also regularly target sugar daddies. And in addition to scams focused on stealing money and personal information, 
Sugar babies also need to be on the lookout for salt daddies who use the promise of future generosity to get free sex with no intention of spoiling anyone ever. Within the sugar dating scene, there are sugar parents who seem mostly interested in using their wealth to land people who would normally be considered out of their league, and sugar babies who are mostly focused on the money and material things that would be inaccessible to them in a typical relationship with a peer. But then, there are those on both sides of the equation who view sugar dating as more of a kink, often seeing the exchange within sugar dating as just another sexually charged form of power exchange. And though he might word it slightly differently, I would place Mike firmly in that second camp. The same could be said for Ruby from the Sugar Baby Confessionals. I would never go out on a date with someone just because they're willing to give me some really expensive gift or, um, you know, such and such amount of money. It's that's not really what does it for me. Um, now, the money part of it or the gifts that that is a part of the kink, though. So, again, it's kind of for me finding that balance and finding the person who who gets the fact that I want him to spoil me, but at the same time, understanding I wouldn't be there if I didn't genuinely like him. So that can be a little bit tricky. Ruby is married, and her husband, whom she often refers to as favorite person, also gets off on her exploits and has adventures of his own, using Seeking.com as a sugar daddy. We've heard criticisms of Seeking throughout the show, but Ruby is a fan of the site and exclusively uses it to find sugar daddies. She's had a number of successful long-term and short-term arrangements, including a magical one-night encounter with an older couple, which she considers a major highlight. We had such a fantastic night. They um, put me up in an absolutely beautiful hotel overlooking a gorgeous park in the middle of London. We went to a burlesque show together. We went to dinner at a very beautiful Michelin-starred restaurant. Um, and at the end of the night, I had sex with both of them. And it was really, really good. I mean, just the whole thing from the first initial cocktail at a bar to the shows that we went to, to the food that we enjoyed, to expressing our desire to each other. It was fantastic. And I remember thinking to myself, I really hope that 30 years from now, this is going to be favorite person in myself. <laughs> you know, that we'll be rolling in it like this couple and we'll be able to treat some you know, beautiful younger woman to a really fantastic evening. So that was that was super cool. And I absolutely adored them. They were so, so lovely. That was just a one-time thing? That was just a one-time thing. Yeah, they, they had a policy that they did not like to see people more. I mean, maybe they'll contact me in a year or two. That's kind of what they made it sound like. But um, neither one of them wanted to feel like they would get attached to a, a lady. So they would take her out, wine her, dine her, have a great night. And then that would be it for a very, very long time. So yeah, so it wasn't a, an ongoing relationship. Um, and you know, actually, I'm okay with that. It It feels... I think it's a bit more special, the fact that it was just that one time. 
and it was so over the top, like the, the, the number of things that we did. And it was really cool. Couples pursuing ethical non-monogamy in its various forms, like this older couple Ruby had so much fun with, often wrestle with this issue of how best to avoid attachments that could jeopardize their primary relationship. The fallout from that unfortunate outcome is explored at length and with great emotion in the Sugar Baby Confessionals after Ruby falls hard for one of her sugar daddies, whom she calls the Brit. As I mentioned earlier, my interview with Ruby also included the host of the Sugar Baby Confessionals, Sarah Mae Tucson. I was dating the Brits. We fell madly in love with each other. That was a real monkey wrench in the whole plan that favorite person and I had. You thought you were completely inoculated mm. against Good Lord, loving somebody I else. I know. Because I remember how naive I was. Because <laughs> in the beginning of the podcast, I'm like, that was a concern for me. You know, I was, you know, as a very vanilla person who's been with the same guy since I was 19, I was like, well, what if you catch feels for this someone else, you know? And mm. um, she did. <laughs> yeah. And I'd like to say, have it on the record that I never said I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> Until now. <laughs> yeah. Dang. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> I was genuinely in love and happy being with my husband. Um, there, there, you know, there weren't any huge issues in our relationship. It's not like I was looking to get out of it and find someone better or shinier or anything like that. Um, and because of that, I was You just really, wanted adventure. Yeah, exactly. I just wanted something to mix it up. And, um, you know, favorite person and I are, we've been open for years. So it's not as if he hasn't had his own liaisons and, and, you know, nights out with people and stuff like that. So, um, funnily enough, he's the person who told me about seeking arrangement. <laughs> he, he read about it on some blog post, and he was like, Oh, now, you've always had this, like, you know, sexy um, fantasy about being like a high class call girl, or, you know, what about doing something like this? This is kind of similar. And I was like, oh, okay, you know? So he was the person who actually, like, suggested that I become a sugar baby in the first place just to give something kind of wild and crazy a try. Um, and I really thought what would happen is that I would go out on a handful of dates. And I would have the thrill of accepting some kind of financial gain from it, which just seems so taboo and kinky and wrong. But because of all that, it's even hotter. Um, and then I would I would go home to favorite person and we would use my stories to fuel our own sex life together. Um, and that certainly was the case for the the whole beginning of you know as Sarah said you know when we were we were numbering the different people I went out with and I would tell these funny stories about what happened and that was all great until until I met the Brit and um and I just felt really differently about him and I had to start questioning everything so the way that it happened in real life isn't anywhere near what I was expecting um, and it's been a real lesson for me actually, to understand that, you know, if something in life is going to be a real adventure, then it, it has to be risky. 
you have to just jump into the universe and figure things out as you go. Otherwise, it's, it's you know, how can you call that a real adventure? If you know what's coming down the, the path, then um, you're not risking anything and you're not fully living, I think. So um, I feel extremely fortunate that favorite person and I have figured out how to navigate all this stuff. And at this point, I'm very thankful that we went through everything because as I said to you a moment ago, Chris, we're definitely so much closer than we ever would have been before. But holy shit, <laughs> going through it was definitely not easy. So yeah, she was pretty broken. There was a, it was a while there where she was pretty broken, you know, and uh, that was very hard for me to, to see mm. and hear because, you know, the ethically I was thinking to myself is this did I instigate this in some way have I said you know I'm recording should I be recording this person's pain and I, I went and fucked all those guys because you needed good material Sarah obviously yeah. um I am the deus ex machina no um I do not have a god complex no but you know what I mean I, I'm sure you I'm sure you've experienced that in some ways it's just this idea of like this is hard to listen to for me as her friend, but, you know, as a sort of producer, you're kind of wanting to give a fair reflection of the experience, you know? So it's, cause it's, right. it's her life. It's a real person's life. It's not, it's a person that I care deeply about. So it's not, you know, but I, I really feel like I needed to live through it. What I would say is that advice I would give generally for, for people, maybe particularly for sugar babies, but even for sugar daddies is, have a very clear sense in your own mind as to what your boundaries are, like what's healthy for you. And don't allow people to push you past that. You know, really, really stick to what it is that you feel feeds your soul and you're comfortable with. That sounds like great advice for most things, actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Repairing her marriage required a year and a half of couples therapy. She also took an extended break from sugaring. I, I have dipped my toe back into sugar dating. I wouldn't say that I'm into it as much as I was at the time that Sarah was recording and, and interviewing me. But yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's quite exciting. It's, it's a really fun way of meeting people and it does scratch an itch of mine. So um, I am not currently dating anyone significant or reoccurring, but um, I've, I've had some further adventures that were lots of fun. So, yeah. Ruby and I spoke a bit about power dynamics within sugar dating and the role her own personal privilege might play in how she navigates these arrangements. My husband makes a very good living. Um, we're pretty comfortable. So... I've never felt as if I didn't have agency in a situation. I've always felt like I was very powerful. In fact, almost perhaps more powerful than the man. Um, and that's because I know I can walk away at any time, regardless as to what's being provided to me. I don't need the money. I don't need the gifts. I don't need the travel or whatever it is that they're trying to lavish on me. And because of that, I can be really picky and choosy about who I spend time with and really make it fun for both of us. And, uh, and that's exactly what I want to do. As I said before, if I ever got the sense that a guy felt like the only reason that I was spending time with him is because he was going to give me 
you know, a lot of cash at the end of it. That would make me feel really bad, actually. At the top of the show, SJ spoke about getting into sugar dating at a time when she, too, was financially stable, though not exactly as comfortable as she wanted to be. Her job at a sex shop provided her a modest income that her initial sugar daddy supplemented quite a bit. And though she felt respected and got a lot out of that relationship emotionally as well as materially, it still sometimes felt like a job. You mentioned that, you know, sometimes you just don't want to go out and in your typical relationship, someone can be just say, hey, I don't feel like going to this party or whatever. But because of the arrangement, you you felt that that was less of an option. Did the sex ever feel the same way or no? Occasionally, I'm... I would definitely call myself a, a pretty sexual person. Um, I'd say that I probably have a higher sex drive than most people. But yeah, there were definitely times where I I wouldn't say that I ever felt coerced into anything or that anything was ever really like pressured. But I think that I maybe convinced myself at some times that it was, you know, this is a part of the terms of the situation And so maybe there were times when I was really not very in the mood, um, but I would kind of go along with things and and sort of let sex happen (laughs) in a way that normally I maybe wouldn't. Um, But I do think that that he was very respectful about that and and could kind of read read me a little bit. And so there were definitely a couple times where I wasn't in the mood and he was intuitive enough to figure that out and would kind of back off. Um, He definitely never pressured me or anything, but I probably pressured myself. This idea of sometimes going along with it when you're not necessarily in the mood or, or feeling like it is something that people do in typical relationships anyway sometimes it's just sort of like you know I'm gonna be a a giving partner today even though I'd much rather binge something on Netflix right now yeah absolutely I think obviously the the reasoning behind it is a little bit different um but I don't think it's a totally unique experience to being in a sugar relationship. I think that it happens to everybody. Everybody has that moment. Um, just our, our reasoning behind it is a little different. A big part of why SJ was interested in participating in this episode is because she thinks depictions of sugar dating on TV and in movies are often misleading. I think it's a very idealized industry and I think people have this image of it in their heads and I would say that image is probably pretty wrong but they sort of um, see it with rose-colored glasses I guess in a way that they don't really see the rest of sex work. And the people who have that image in their head I mean we've already gotten into this a little bit but are there certain misunderstandings they have that come to mind that we haven't really touched on? I guess people really think that it's, that it's, you know, vastly common that people who are sugaring are never sleeping with anyone, that there's no sex, that there are tons of sugar babies out there whose only job is to be pretty and cute and just arm candy for someone to show off. And I'm while I'm positive that there are some people out there who that is their arrangements. I have met quite a few people who have done sugaring and I have never met anyone who 
has ever had any kind of situation like that. I think that people somehow in their mind really detach sugaring from sex work because they think that they can cut the sex out of it. And I don't think that you realistically can. And that was kind of your hope a little bit going in. Is that fair to say? I don't think that that, I don't think that I went into it saying that there would never be any kind of sexual interaction. I think that I went into it saying that there would only be sexual interaction if there would have been anyway without the money, you know, that I wasn't going to feel pressured to have any kind of, any kind of sexual encounters with people who I normally wouldn't. And in terms of your experiences outside of that initial person, was that true? Were you able to accomplish that? Oh my gosh, no. Not at all. <laughs> no, there are a lot of really ugly wealthy men out there. <laughs> and when 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 you had that first experience with, you know, a someone you describe as an ugly wealthy man, what was going through your head? Were you experienced enough at that point with the initial person that your thought process around that kind of thing had, had changed so much that it wasn't a big deal or was it an adjustment? What was that like? No, I think that I had, I had kind of come to terms with the fact that that wasn't always going to be the case. Um, and so I was, I was okay with it. I think that there are a lot of reasons that people have sex that are not initial physical attraction and my reasoning just changed. Um, so no, I was I was still pretty comfortable with it, but certainly not someone who I would have been having sex with outside of this. Was there an overall highlight from this whole experience? You mentioned flying that plane, which I imagine if, if that's not the highlight, it's pretty high up there. It's pretty high up there. I would say um, I was having... Just a really tough time at work, and um, you believe it or not, working in a sex shop is not all, you know, roses. And I was just kind of stressed and a, a little down. Um, and that original man um, said, "Oh, let's just let's get out of town for the weekend." Um, and we went to <laughs> we went to the Jersey Shore, which, like, why is that where anyone would choose to go? You know. But it was actually really cool, and it was very fun. We went to, like, the older, you know, not like the bump and fist bump and hair gel Jersey Shore, um, but down to, like, the boardwalks, and it was not summertime, and we couldn't get in the ocean, but it was so pretty, and just, like, a nice reminder of how sugaring can be a, a really cool escape um, when you need it to be, and definitely... Just being able to pick up and go for a weekend and go somewhere nice and take your mind off things, that was a really memorable little trip. And you had someone with means in your life who wanted to spoil you. Yeah, just just the idea that after I had been in this long-term relationship with someone who didn't care to ever pay much mind to me or, you know— spoil me at all, even with just attention, um, to go from that to someone who, who really like took pleasure in it and who really enjoyed treating me well and letting me do whatever I wanted to do and taking me on these adventures. And it was definitely a big change and just a really cool thing to experience and helped me see a lot of value in myself that I, that I maybe didn't see before. And for any 19 year old 
listening to us right now who's hearing this and thinking, that sounds like fun. I'd like to fly a plane and go to the classic part of the Jersey Shore or the... What what advice do you have for them? I was the exception and not the rule. Um, I don't want anyone to think that I had this standard experience getting into the industry. So I think manage your expectations, um, set boundaries and enforce those boundaries. Um, don't spend time with people who don't respect you. That is a a big one. I definitely think that that's a mistake that I made quite a bit. And be really safe. Have somebody who you trust who can be your check-in person who knows where you are and who you're with. And, um, you know, make sure that you're not totally alone in this. That's a, it's a hard secret to keep (laughs) and it could potentially be pretty dangerous. So um, don't be very naive about it and make sure you're being safe and but have fun too. It's a cool opportunity if you if you stumble onto the right arrangement. In every episode of this show where we hear from multiple people representing a particular subculture, I find myself pondering this question of how representative the group I've spoken to are of the wider overall community we are discussing. But I usually don't spend too much time on it because in every case The answer is unknowable. So I hope you take what you've heard today for what it is. The educated musings of thoughtful, intelligent people who collectively have quite a bit of experience within the sugar lifestyle and know a great deal about this topic, but who at the same time amount to a statistically tiny sample of this global community, which is large, diverse, and full of surprises. I want to thank everyone who spoke with me for this episode. I enjoyed and appreciated each one of these conversations. Special thanks, as always, to Sean Payne and Louis DeMeo for all that you do, and to Ben Jordan, the flashbulb, for our theme music. We will be back in January, so until then, happy fucking New Year. <laughs>